I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Carolina Setterwall on her devastating debut novel, Let's Hope for the Best. Carolina Setterwall was born in 1978 in Sala, Sweden. She studied media and communication in Uppsala, Stockholm and London and has worked within the music and publishing industries as an editor and writer. She currently lives in Stockholm with her son and Let's Hope for the Best is her first novel which we're going to be talking about today and is based on the author's own experiences. Carolina, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. And that's what I want to talk about first of all because this is, I mean, it's being sold as a novel. Yeah. So I want to talk about why it's being described as a novel rather than a memoir, I guess, first of all. Well, there is a short and a longer answer to that. The short one is because there are... There are pieces on this book, quite big pieces, that are actually fiction. So I couldn't call it a memoir. But the longer answer is that I think I needed to think of it as a a novel when I wrote it because it felt too close to home and too close to people that were still alive uh, to just write straight from my heart and then go out and know that I would go out there and, and call it all like a truth. So it, it ended up being, I would say, it's it's hard to say like percentages, but maybe like 80% actually happen and, and the experiences are really close to the way I experience things, but there are made up pieces too. And to combine both of, both of those answers, because this is how I thought you would describe it, you know, in yeah. terms of badging it as a novel enabled you to take some sort of critical distance yeah. from, from the sort of subject matter but also in terms of as you've just said you know a small part of it is actually fictionalized and yeah. is that is that the same does that do the same thing and being able to write something in a you know in a fictionalized way also gives you a bit of distance from it definitely and freedom like i wrote this book it took me about a year and a half to write it and uh 
During that period of time, I had this uh, publishing house, an editor who constantly read it. And during certain periods of time, I would kind of flip out and there were so many made up uh, things in the book. And then after a while, when you start cutting it, like this doesn't, this isn't good enough and this isn't good enough and this is good. What's left is actually most of the things that are really, really like true, at least to me. But that wasn't necessarily what I set out to do from the beginning. So when I was writing, I just I think I, I gained some like freedom and I um, escaped a writer's block by thinking about it as fiction. And so the book basically has two parallel timelines. Yes. Yeah. And we'll come back to the second one later on in the show. But I want to talk about the the timeline that sets slightly in the past, first yeah. of all, wherein you meet a man, Axel, yeah. and the beginnings of your life with him. So let's talk about, I guess, first of all, where you were in, in your life when you met. Well, I would describe myself as a late bloomer. I was 28, but I was acting like maybe, I don't know, a 19, 20-year-old. But in the same way as all my friends were acting, we were out like partying a lot. We were singles and we were DJing and we were working within the music or or like the industry of, of like the party industry, more or less. And I had had the feeling for a while that I only went out to clubs and stuff because I really wanted to meet someone. I really wanted to settle. And I met this odd guy at this party that was like he was totally different from most of the guys I'd met before because he was like he was not flattering. He was unique and he was a bit harsh and he was just like a person I I hadn't come across in a while and um so I met this guy and I instantly I felt that this is a person I want to like grow old with. I want to be with him. He's cool. He's like he's like no one else. So that was me back in 2009. Uh, I was just about to turn 31, I think. Uh, and he was 29. And uh, so we met and I kind of convinced him to <laughs> get into a relationship with me, I think. So you, you do quite quickly embark on quite an intense relationship. Yeah. And it's, what I loved about the book is, you, you know, you write about, you know, considering what's going to happen later on, which we'll talk about later, as I said, you write about the book in a sort of warts and all fashion because it's it's a difficult relationship often, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're really not like each other in many ways. Uh, I think that's what we like about each other. But also after a while, that's what we really have a hard time like um, dealing with. We um, He thinks I'm really pushy and I'm always restless and I always want to take things forward and I want to go faster and he want to like hit the brakes and think about things and not uh, move so quickly. So we're really different and I think in one way I was really good for him and it was good for me because he, he sort of kept me on ground and in, an, in another n- neither of us could really rest anytime because we were always having this struggle uh, where to go and in what pace. And then in not too short a time, your son comes along. Yeah. And, well, first of all, how does this change the dynamic between you and Axel? Well, it changes everything, but it took us like four years almost. So it's to me, it wasn't like it wasn't a short time. We dated and then we tried to live together and then we 
got this cat together and I was like, why don't we just get a baby? I'm 34. Come on, you know. And he was like, I don't know if I'm ready. I maybe I want to wait for a while. And I was like, come on, I'm, I'm becoming 35. We have to try now. And the dynamic changed in that way that I was really like, I was, I said to him, if you don't want to do this with me, I might not be able to stay with you because I want a child. I know that I do. So it was kind of an ultimatum situation where he just was like, I don't want to split. I want to be with you. So let's try and have a baby. And I think he was secretly hoping that it would take a while. And it took three months and I was pregnant. And the dynamic changed because I think I promised him that if you just come along, things are going to turn out fine. I'm going to take care of everything. I'm going to take care of the baby. You just have to be there like next to me. I'm going to be the project leader. I'm going to do everything. You just have to like tag along. But then the baby came. Ivan, who is five years today, and I was petrified. I wasn't at all as cool as I thought I would be. I thought it was like so hard to become a mother. And this strange little baby in my arms was screaming all the time in the beginning. He was screaming and screaming every night. And I was like, Axel, you have to take this. I don't know what to do. And I felt so much guilt because... I felt that I had uh, promised him I would take care of everything and he had a lot of job and work and I felt that I was like the worst partner to like drag him into this and then not be able to do it by myself in a way. But I think you write brilliantly about the early years with Ivan because he's a difficult child. Like, I mean, yeah. Obviously babies are yeah. often are. But, you I've know, only he, had one but he was he wasn't easy. I think he had like, he was screaming the first five months every night for hours. And then after that, he started getting like night terrors and he woke up and he was crazy in the middle of the night. He was yelling and yelling. And when I tried to comfort him, he was like, he didn't even recognize me. So the first six months or seven months or maybe eight months, they were a struggle because I didn't feel confident as a mother. But you're also sleep deprived. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And he was, uh, Axel was working so much. Uh, so we were, we were struggling. It wasn't the best period of time, I think. Well, I wanted to talk about, there's an incident that happens right at the beginning of the book that Axel, he has a different personality to you. He's, yeah. you know, reticent and quite straightforward. And one day he sends you an email yeah. entitled, If I Die, tell us about that email. Well, I, um, I think Ivan was three months old and I was at home uh, nursing all the time and uh, I get this email from my boyfriend who's back at work and he is an IT technician so he's really into safety like he's always nagging like do you, have you backed up your computer have you changed your password he was he was all about like IT safety but then he sent this email and the subject line was if I die and the email consists of a few short sentences that's like, if I die, there is a, a folder on my computer called this and the password is this and I want you to do this. Uh, let's hope for the best, Axel. And that was really like, it's such a strange email to receive. But then again, I was living with Axel and it wasn't that strange. I texted him, I think, and, and was like, what the hell is this? 
And it was like, you can never be too sure. And I kind of just bought that. And I was like, yeah, that's his style. He He's safety first, this guy. And then one night he died. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Carolina Setterwell. We're talking about her debut novel, Let's Hope for the Best. And we ended up the first part basically talking about where we're gonna where we're gonna go now. There's a night in October 2014. Ivan's having difficulty sleeping again. Um, he's been having the night terrors. Axel and yourself end up spending the night in separate rooms. You end up spending the night with with Ivan. And normally I would at the end of the at the end of the interview I'd ask you to read a bit of the book, but um, I'm going to ask you to do it now. Yeah. If you would tell us about that night. Absolutely. I wake up next to Ivan at 6.30 in the morning. We actually got a good night's sleep. Well, everything is relative, but good by our standards. Ivan, nearly nine months old and sleeping in his own room since the move three weeks ago, is having night terrors. I still breastfeed between three and six times a night. I mostly end up sleeping on a mattress on the floor of his room, even though the plan was that you and I would finally spend our nights together again. Yesterday evening, after trying to comfort Ivan from 10 to 11 and then nursing for what seemed like forever while you sat in the kitchen working, finally I just texted you from Ivan's room. I said that I have to stay with Ivan again and you answered with a simple okay and good night. 
Not long after that, I heard you moving between the bedroom and the living room. You turned off all the lights, brushed your teeth and went to bed. I wake up almost rested. The cat hasn't been whining outside Ivan's room as she sometimes does and Ivan only needed to breastfeed two times after his outburst just before midnight. He's in a good mood, ready to crawl out of our temporary bed on the floor, aiming for the door and an adventure in the rest of the apartment. I lift him up, tell him it's time to go wake up daddy. When I open the door, the cat's waiting for us and allows us to pet her. She too seems newly awake. We all head towards your room. I put Ivan down on the bed so he can crawl over to you and be the first thing you see when you open your eyes. I say, good morning daddy, in that tone I use when I'm directing my words towards another adult but I'm actually speaking to Ivan. I mostly do this to you. Ivan takes aim for your head, but before he can really get going, I notice that something is wrong. The way you're lying is unusual, crooked and bent, in the fetal position, your face pressed against the pillow. There's also something odd about your skin. It's paler than usual, lifeless. I don't want to touch your ankle, which is sticking out from under the blanket near where I'm standing, but I do anyway. It's cold, pale, stiff against my fingers. There's no blood flowing inside. You're not there anymore. You're dead. I know that now. I can't imagine being in this situation that you find yourself in. What happens over the next few hours? I can't imagine being in that position. I just want to say, like, when I read it, it's like it happened to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is sort of why I asked you to read it rather than talk about it. Yeah, like... What happens is that I become like 100% rational. All my emotions just like they're they're not there. I'm just a, like a robot functioning. I'm calling the, um, do you have 911 here? Because it's 999. 999. Okay, we call uh, 112. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I call them. I have Ivan uh, like on my hip and I have the phone in the other hand and I'm like, you have to come here now because my partner is dead. Uh, I can't be here anymore. It's I I have to get out. And then I do everything. I say everything that I'm supposed to say. I like I say our address, our our code to the door, Axel's um, like identification number and mine and everything. And, And then they ask me to to like look for his pulse. And I don't feel it. And I just say that to the person on the phone. And then I kind of just hang up and run. I take even with me with a blanket and I just run out to the yard and, and sit down and wait for somebody to come. And those moments, like when I describe them now, it's like I'm describing somebody else because I still can't emotionally remember them. I know that that's what happened. And people came and like Axel's family came and my stepmother and then my mother came and people like started taking care of me. But I didn't start feeling anything until maybe like that night or the day after. And the paramedics turn up, the police have to come as well. Yeah. Because, you know, he's a he's a young person. And yeah. He's died. It's an unexpected event. Yeah. What happens there? Well, the police came and uh, they started going through our like our kitchen where we had this shelf that where I had stupidly enough have been like buying over the counter sleeping pills collecting pills yeah which is so like 
it seems so stupid now, but when I was younger, I was like, it's so cool that when you go to New York, you can buy sleeping pills over the counter because we couldn't in Sweden. So I bought them and I took them home and I never used them. But I was all of a sudden I was so scared that maybe Axel took them. What if he took his life? Like, what if he killed himself? I'm never, ever going to be able to get past that. So I was really nervous and the police was like just going through all our stuff and and they found everything in order. Nothing was missing. Uh, And I had to explain why we had these sleeping pills at home at all. And then they left and then then this uh, doctor came and, and wanted to talk to me about what he found and what he thought was the reason. But he couldn't say for sure because nothing like in the body said for sure what, what had been the cause. And then uh, somebody came and picked up the body and I wasn't at home because I was told to leave the apartment. So that was the last time. As you just mentioned about, you know, worrying about whether or not he took the pills. Yeah. You're feeling guilt here as well right? and, yeah. and they very quickly say to you there's nothing you could have done about this if you'd have been sleeping in bed next to him you'd have woke up and found yeah. him dead you know this is nothing to do with you yeah but nonetheless you can't help but feel it no like yeah when the doctor said that to me i was like yeah but you don't know the background story i've been a bitch for so long i've been a bitch girlfriend and a bitch parent and uh, i most definitely caused this in one way or the other. So that was my main feeling, like when when it all, when I kind of, after a few hours, when I understand that he died and nobody could tell me why, the most like logical thing to me was that I'd killed him. And I think that that was my way of trying to make sense and take control because people aren't supposed to just die without explanation. If there isn't an explanation, I might as well just find one. And the one I found was, it's my fault. In the immediate aftermath, what's going on with Ivan as well? Because, you know, he's another human being that's relied yeah. on you. Yeah, I think I rather quickly, I knew that I am going to have to get through this one way or the other because he is eight months old and he's going to get a future. He's going to to get a childhood when he, like, he's going to get to laugh. He's going to get to have fun. I'm going to do everything in my power to make him not, like, suffer more than he's obviously going to suffer from this. But I had to take in a lot of people to help me because I was so crushed. So my family came, my extended family came, my friends came and people just started like making this uh, uh, schedule. People would be around all the time and help me like it's um, time to go shopping. I'll go shopping, one would say. And another one would do the dishes and another one would cook and another one would take out the trash. And all I had to do the first month, I would say, it was just to be around breastfeed him, play with him for as much as I could, and then just be like close to him physically, because mentally I was, I don't know even where I was. I was so away. And of course, inevitably, those people, that support group gradually falls away. And there you are, you're, you know, you're a a widow in your mid thirties, and now also a a single mother of a child that we've already established has been quite labour intensive. Yeah. What happens over the next over the next year or so with him? Well, the first year is 
I don't know. It feels like the first year I just I just tried to take the days one by one, just get through them and, and make him like Ivan have something to laugh about every day or see somebody that loves him or likes him or, or whatever. And I think that was a way for me to not having to deal with what I felt also, like I had this purpose. It's easy when you have a child because a child chose you like I, I pooped in my nappy. Okay, so I have to change it, you know. But then after a while, it was time for me to get back to work and for him to go to nursery. And I just had to like start to try and, and get back to my normal life as it was before. So I went back to work. My friends went back to their lives. Uh, they always said, like, you're always welcome. Just come over. But I had this child that couldn't. He wasn't easy to just take over. He couldn't s- fall asleep at somebody else's couch and stuff. So we were mostly alone and at home. And I was really... Really, I I was feeling so isolated and lonely and uh, like everybody else had somebody and I didn't. I just had Ivan and, and he just had me and it felt so wrong. And then after almost two years, I um, just kind of stumbled upon somebody, another person that had lost his wife and fell in love. Like from one day to the other, I was like teenage. I I had this crush that was, I don't know, it was like I was 14 years again. And uh, the thing was that since he was, he was a widow too, widower, he was also longing for the same things I think that I did. So we just decided really quickly that we would try to build a family. Like it within three months, we would be engaged and and looking for a place to live together. So, yeah. and you talk about towards the end of this book that relationship and it has its ups and downs. And what you don't you don't mention in the book, you don't name him in the book. No. But um, I mean, it's easy enough to Google. But this is Tom Mamquist. He's another another writer, and I have his book and have read it. So it's, it's it's fascinating to me that you know the two of you sort of meet. And so I, I want to talk about how. The idea to write about this comes about, I guess. Mm, Yeah. Well, there again, uh, when I was writing this book, I was thinking about it as fiction and I felt free. Like all of the, I would say, the episodes that follows from in the book where I meet this person, that's not really him. It's in many ways, it's him and I. Uh, In some ways... It's different people that mm-hmm. I've lived with before. I took that freedom. And since I was um, uh, living and seeing, uh, living with this author who had done almost the same thing a couple of years before, he was really like, he, he thought I should write exactly the way I wanted to. And he was like, do it your way. Don't mind me, you know. So that wasn't really the hard part. I try to like tell a story of this relationship that began very like passionately and quickly and then ended in the end of, of my book. And I had his blessing, but he was like, I don't feel that person is 100% me. And I was like, no, he's not. He's he's a part of this story because I wanted to tell this story about grief, about guilt, about longing, about bitterness and about new love. And I, I think I always felt that the story was a bit more important than the truth, you know. So, yeah, he, he did that before and his stance was like, do what's best for the story and I'll be behind you. And the story, like my book ends in a kind of, I, I don't know, 
relationship wise is kind of a bad place. Uh, life wise, it's for me when I got the realization that like I, I'm not a half family. Me and Ivan, no matter what, we are a family. Even though I've always like felt like we're we're half, we're crooked, we're we're not good enough on our own. But I, the book ends. I don't know if that's good to say, but but it ends in a realization for me that we're fine. It has to be something that works for all of us. So yeah, but it was a great. I think I don't think I would have done it unless I would have lived with another author and writer who had done that trip before in his life. Yeah. And in terms of the the reception to this book, I mean, it was a bestseller in Sweden. It's now being you know translated into multiple languages. Yeah. How has the re- how have you felt about the reception? Uh, surprised, I think, mostly because I thought that I thought that I wrote a a book and a story that was a bit too depressive for people to really comprehend. Like, it's too sad. Uh, some people that like you know sad stories, they're gonna like it. But then I think that the uh, reactions I got was from people both that related to the the parenting and the uh, modern like love relationship and the struggles more than just the the death and grieving process parts. So I was a bit surprised. Still am. It's weird for me to be here and speak about it in English. One other thing for me then, and and we'll finish. I mean, you've mentioned obviously the writer's influence yeah. on this book coming out. But what have what are the writers have been an influence on it? Do you think? When I started writing this book, I hadn't read in maybe five years because I'd been so exhausted, and I don't think I even watched anything on like Netflix. I was like, I don't remember. But lately, I've read a lot, and I I think that the stories and and the books that I like those are they don't have to be autobiographical they don't have to like be memoirs or something but when i get the feeling that this is so close to the person telling the story that it like i think that it happened to the one who wrote it uh then i'm uh, i'm i'm really inspired by it and uh Today I I was asked to share a few like recommendations when I was in a bookstore and it could be like I I recently read Sheila Hetty mm-hmm. do you say that Mother. motherhood mm-hmm. I loved it because she's really like I I read it as an essay rather than a novel but she calls it a novel that was a question that it doesn't really speak to me because I knew that I wanted to have a child, but the thoughts and the dwelling and the openness of her doubts, I felt like this is something that speaks to me. And also I recently read Sigrid Rousing, you know, Mayhem. Mm-hmm. Loved it. She's Swedish, but she lives here. Yeah, well, she's been on the show. Oh, she did. Yeah. I loved her book. I cried so much. And that was about addiction. Uh-huh. But it's still like the theme is family. What's a family? How can you be everything for each other and not like let... How can you be something for a brother or a sister or a mother or a father uh, or a child and still keep a bit of yourself? How can you How can you get to live and still be everything for everybody else? So I love that book. And I think those themes like family and love and to 
like remain a whole person and still being something for other people around you, those really speak directly to me. So I've been talking to Carolina Setterwall. We've been talking about her debut novel, Let's Hope for the Best, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Carolina, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>